Um, for much of the 20th century, the weekly news magazines were great giants of the journalistic landscape. Uh, Newsweek and Time, big budget star writers, great photojournalism. Of course, the internet um, put paid to much of that, though thankfully not all of it. Uh, time's still uh, limping on. Newsweek, uh, at one stage, uh, was sort of pronounced, had the last rights written over it, but remarkably has risen again under new ownership uh, and is uh, thriving. So what is the magic? We're going to hear a little bit about how that has happened. Uh, so hopefully this will be a, a, an encouraging and optimistic story uh, from Owen Matthews. Owen is a contributing editor at Newsweek. He was formerly a Moscow bureau chief. Uh, he's worked in Turkey and across the Middle East as well. So he'll tell us a little bit about Newsweek at the minute and then we'll get into discussion and I hope perhaps we'll, we'll explore some of his experience in, in Moscow and his country. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I have to start with an apology, and the apology is that I am not Matt McAllister. So anyone who's here uh, to hear Matt McAllister can leave without any shame, because uh, uh, Matt McAllister has, is to be congratulated. He has just this last week been appointed editor-in-chief of Newsweek um, all over the world and just moved to New York after the... Uh, resignation of Jim Impoco, who's been at the helm for three and a half years and has done a fantastic job. And uh, what, I've, uh, what I'm going to try and, and tell you a little bit, uh, far less comprehensively than Matt could have, is the strange tale of the fall and rise of one of the great titans of uh, American journalism, Newsweek magazine. And um, I think it's important first... Um, Let's stick to chronology. I think everyone in this room, as a journalist, knows that chronology is the absolute mother load of any story. If in doubt, just do it chronologically. So let's start in 1932. No, OK. Not that chronological. <laughs> uh, let's uh, start by framing what Newsweek was and what made it so brilliantly successful and such an essential part of America's national conversation for decades. Uh, essentially, Newsweek magazine told middle America what they should think about the world, what they needed to know about the world. And for decades, that formula, which actually sounds, and in fact, in some ways was rather middle-brow in its presentation, was actually executed by fantastically uh, accomplished, uh, well-connected, and articulate journalists. So essentially, as one of my great journalistic heroes, a man called James Wilde, in fact, worked for Time magazine for 45 years and lived in Istanbul in his retirement. He started as a photographer in Dien Ben Phu in 1947, spent the 50s and 60s in Indochina, and then with brilliant timing moved to Africa in 1974 and was in Africa for that whole um, horrific 70s. Anyway, James Wilde, 45 years on the masthead of Time magazine, explained it, nailed it. He said that news magazines are a gold-plated machine for turning prime steak into hamburger. So what you have is a network in the heyday of Newsweek of 30 bureaus around the world. You have enormous repertorial firepower, and you have some of the best people in the business covering a story which, in today's terms, would generate you know, a million web pieces. It would be every single little nugget of reporting in today's internet-based news 
environment is blown up and made into, in itself, the nugget becomes the news story. The Newsweek model of old was to do precisely the contrary, which is to, 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 to what we would now describe as aggregate, to take all that fantastic information that you're getting from all the top people who are, you know, can get, you know, El Jefe on the phone at two o'clock in the morning, you know, and like call of the Secretary of State in the, in the corridor. And, you know, people with serious access would all file their stuff to New York, it would all be compiled and turned into a story which had pretensions and in fact often was properly magisterial. It was really extremely well informed and to say the least, in a slight difference to today's BuzzFeed uh, mashable world, every single sentence was therefore supposedly backed with deep reporting. And that formula worked because you're actually presenting a, an audience with a rather small attention span uh, who have no real appetite for, it was not pitched at people who are daily New York Times readers or Washington Post readers, it was pitched at the, sort of the middle America that wanted one source for all of its news. And in fact, actually, in defense of the old middle brown Newsweek, they were also managed to be fantastically uh, avant-garde and progressive in many ways. I mean, there are two great stories. Um, if you ever get a chance to look at old copies of Newsweek, it's a fantastic way of wasting an afternoon. Um, the, uh, there's a story in 1963, um, a year before the Civil Rights Act, Newsweek deployed 40 reporters and did 1,250 interviews all across uh, uh, America. And the, the cover story that was produced was called The Negro in America. It was a fantastic, searing portrait of Jim Crow of segregation. It was extremely shocking for that time, um, and, and it's all the more shocking because it was, appeared in such a mainstream publication. 1967, a year before the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, before America had discovered that Vietnam was going seriously wrong, Newsweek magazine runs a story by a, uh, a reporter called Edward Beer who was um, legendary, you probably knew him in person, um, uh, Edward Bear, um, and uh, the photographer was uh, Bryce Allen, uh, covering Hill 875, um, a hill in Vietnam, uh, covered in uh, the corpses of American Marines. And that was Thanksgiving at Dacto, was that story, um, early December. Um, uh, 1967. And that was you know, truly shocking and truly uh, something, in fact, subsequently, that, that uh, in, the, in the last uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the American media have actually, on principle, shown almost no dead American soldiers. So the, 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 the takeaway of, the, of this was that Newsweek was both incredibly thoroughly reported, required a staff of thousands to produce these extreme, extremely concentrated stories. The product was more or less a diametric opposite of today's internet world. It was an enormous amount of, 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 of information pre-digested and presented in a extremely, uh, I mean sometimes glib, but storified form. And uh, what went wrong? Uh, what went wrong was it was too expensive. This gold-plated machine uh, was gigantically, uh, fantastically wasteful. Uh, one of the things that uh, my esteemed former editor, um, who I'll come to in more detail and slightly more detail later, Tina Brown, who took over for a short and disastrous tenure <laughs> from 2001 and 2013 and killed Newsweek, in fact. Uh, but Tina Brown um, uh, 
said that when she was going through the ownership documents um, and wandering through the building, which was on West 57th Street at that point, it was on four stories. It used to have an entire building, by the way, at 444 Madison Avenue. And then they, they downscaled from the entire block on Madison Avenue to only half of a giant building on West 57th Street. But it had private dining rooms and it had sort of editorial sort of um, editors, sort of uh, conference suites and so on. And she said it was like, uh, it was like watching James Cameron's Titanic, you know, it was seeing the camera going through the wreck of this giant old ship. And indeed, when I joined Newsweek um, in 1997, terrifyingly, I think actually, uh, I think more or less everyone in this room was alive at that point, but only just. <laughs> 20, uh, 20 years ago now, uh, at the Moscow Bureau, we had two apartments, we had two drivers, we had a researcher, we had uh, a photo editor, we had an office manager, we had uh, general dog's bodies. I mean, it was, it was like a Cecil B. DeMille film. That's just the Moscow Bureau. And uh, so, you know, clearly this is not a sustainable model in the modern, modern world. And very simply, <coughs> Tina Brown, it was, so, it was running, uh, surprisingly, actually still running a project in 2006, you know, it's not a million years ago. You know, Ten years ago, it was 11 years ago, it was actually still profitable. So we're talking about actually really, you know, you know rather short and, and, and precipitous decline. Um, it was running at a, at a, it quickly ran by 2011 to about a $30 million a year uh, def, uh, running operating deficit. It was sold by the Washington Post company to uh, a very charming and educated man called Sidney Harmon, who was a, uh, those of you who might have desktop speakers by Harmon Carden, he was, uh, that, that's, uh, that's Sidney Harmon. Unfortunately, as Cruel Tongues noted, Newsweek had about as much future as Sidney Harmon because Sidney Harmon was born in 1918. And uh, so by, by 2011, he was getting on a bit. Um, so uh, sadly, Sidney passed away the, the, the following year. It was, it was bought by Barry Diller. He brought in Tina Brown. Tina Brown tried to do her sort of pizzazz thing then without realizing that pizzazz is like an 80s thing and didn't work in 2010s. It all, it all folded. Uh, the uh, print edition was closed. Then it was, we get on to the interesting part of the story, and that it was, was who bought it next and what they did. Newsweek over print edition closed, the online edition folded into the Daily Beast as like an afterthought. Newsweek exists as a little sort of right click in the top right hand corner, Newsweek if you want to. Um, the website traffic is down to 200, if you can open this down for your benefit, 211,000 211, um, um, in March of 2013. So basically the whole thing is dead as a doornail. What happens? They bring in uh, Barry Diller, the owner of the Daily Beast, uh, decides that this is a complete dead loss. He brings in uh, complete unknown, but the Chinese, by the way, there's a Chinese media consortium that bid for it, uh, was not accepted, um, a pair of young Silicon Valley entrepreneurs made a bid for it. Um, I wish I could tell you how much they paid for it. Um, given that they said, uh, Jonathan Davis and Etienne Uzak are their names, uh, given that they said, and I think they're probably right, that they bought it on money from friends and family, I think we can safely assume that it was in single-digit millions. <laughs> you know, so you know, it was a fire sale. And um, the, uh, the career of Jonathan Davis and Etienne Uzak, um, Davis is a 
Californian. He's electrical. He's a, a, a electrical engineering graduate by training. Um, we'll talk a moment about what university he graduated from because it's called Olivet University in California, which is evangelical Christian university. And his mate from University Etienne Uzak, a French South African economist, not journalism in any way, shape, or form. Um, so what their background was that in 2006 they had they had begun essentially. Um, what is cruelly called, a title they reject, but in fact is, a content farm. Basically, their business was, um, they had several businesses. Um, IBT was the flagship. That was the one, International Business Times. That was their title that had a, um, uh, a proper journalistic um, background. They, had, they employed real journalists. It was actually their um, sort of window onto serious journalism. But the other business in which uh, Davis was, was involved at 33, uh, called 33 Universal, was actually basically generating news stories based on uh, search engine optimization. In other words, um, I mean, cruelly, that's called clickbait. But I think, you know, we, we, we needn't be so rude, especially since I work for them. But the point is that uh, um, th this content farming um, was the business model which they came to journalism from. So it's not entirely surprising that when they acquired, when International Business Times acquired Newsweek in 2013 as a distressed property, what they immediately started to do and did extremely successfully was get Newsweek back onto the ratings of Google News. And because that was really what they did amazingly well. And uh, uh, by October 2013, the unique visitors were up to a million. By November 1914, uh, 1914 2014, the unique monthly visitors were up to six million. Um, now, uh, I don't actually have the latest figures, although Matt McAllister, by the way, on his uh, desktop at, in his office has a counter open all the time, literally tracking the hits on every story. So it's really a in this day and age, and a really essential part of the business model to make sure that those stories are read by as many people as possible. Um, so um, the latest uh, I've heard it's now uh, in in last autumn it was it was 11 million uniques a month and growing fast. So um, clearly, uh, as as you so wisely said, being owned by wealthy internet entrepreneurs is a good place to be in the modern media world, <laughs> clearly, clearly. So, um, you know, for whatever they, um, I mean, uh, Davis and Uzak have come up, come in for uh, a certain amount of, of, of flack for their uh, evangelical Christian background, and they've come in for a certain amount of flack for their sort of uh, content farming um, business start. But in fact, I mean, to give them what they're due, what they've done, uh, firstly, importantly, I should note that actually no editor that I've ever spoken to at Newsweek has said that they have interfered in content in any way, shape, or form. So, but what they've done and what they did in 2013 is they started hiring, you know, journalistic old hands. You know, Jim Impoco, um, I'm not sure he's in his, he's in his 50s, I mean, he's not, um, you know, which in terms of digital media is, you know, it's like, you know, 150, you know, he's uh, <laughs> extremely uh, old school. So it's actually uh, was a very bold business strategy on their part to make that leap from like tried and tested, you know, content farming to 
serious journalism. And Jim Impoco, you know, uh, former managing editor of Reuters, you know, a, you know, a absolutely safe pair of hands, you know, completely traditional down the line journalist, unlike <coughs> unlike Tina Brown. No bells, no whistles. He is just in the business of delivering scoops, front pages, getting Newsweek back into the national conversation. And um, I mean, it has, to be, it has to be said, there have been a few bumps on the road because, um, I mean, the big return to print began uh, in March of 2014. One of the first big stories in the print edition was um, an expose of the founder of Bitcoin, a guy called Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto, Nakamoto, who was, and it was a major investigative story of the kind that Newsweek used to excel at. It was a four and a half thousand word, you know, it had been reported for months. Um, unfortunately, uh, Nakamoto himself vehemently denied that, in fact, he was the founder of Bitcoin. So that, but nonetheless, you know, you know, as Oscar Wilde famously said, it's better to be, there's only one thing worse than being talked about, and that's not being talked about. <laughs> so, um, there was a certain amount of controversy um, on the uh, Bitcoin story, but the point was that once again people were taking Newsweek seriously. Once again, it was not mercifully edited by Tina Brown, so it actually had some serious journalistic bottom. And the, um, perhaps most surprisingly of all, they kept on um, old correspondents who have been in the field for 20 years, such as your humble servant. So uh, the the. And, and they also you know, pay me generously. Well, what, what, what used to pass, what, what, what used to be not generous in 1990, which is a dollar a word, now counts as, you know, relatively generous. So the, uh, and I'm, uh, and for the last year and a half, I've been, um, uh, from the last two years now, I've, I've been a contributing editor, and my job is essentially to produce uh, one cover story a month, roughly speaking, um, from Turkey and from Russia, which is my, 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 my. Uh, stamping ground. So what you have from me, I should add, um, just in case you're going to ask me any executive style questions, is the worm's eye view of this process. <laughs> but nonetheless, it is a view. And um, uh, an old worm also. So the, um, uh, the, the three takeaways here, um, because I, I want to keep my own comments relatively short because I'm interested in what you're interested in. Um, and first of all, the business of telling news and packaging it in a concise way actually, strangely enough, has not been killed off by the internet. That's the really surprising thing about, I mean, you will have heard, and uh, it, you know, long, the fashion for long-form journalism is not a new thing. You know, long-form has been back for some time. And uh, it turns out that actually, in a, in a world of fake news, and, and it, w w when you have a sort of gigantic sort of scattergun of information, there actually has been, in many ways, flight to quality. And that's been one of the, uh, you know, video didn't kill the radio star. You know, strangely enough, the old brands have endured and the old brands like the New York Times, especially the Washington Post, by the way, and also extraordinary news from the Washington from the Washington Post, you will have heard they've heard they're hiring hundred people, it was fifty yeah, hundred people in the newsroom. They uh, they're they're in profit after their cash injection from Jackson Jeff Bezos there. They uh, are fifty million dollars they they're now um, turning a profit. Um, and as you will have certainly read they really made the running on the Trump story. They, 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 they were the ones that broke some of the most important you know, the news of the, of the DNC hack and so on. So actually, those old sort of giant dinosaurs have, strangely enough, survived. For, furthermore, people are getting used to paying 
oddly enough, for news online. That's not Newsweek's case because we, we're, our, our website is free. But um, the, uh, uh, for the, 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 the Times has reported an enormous increase. The New York Times reported an enormous increase in subscribers um, uh, after certain political events of uh, <laughs> last autumn. And, um, and finally, the, the, uh, the whole idea of um, a magazine, as it turns out, as a magazine as artifact, is also not dead because um, the current structure of Newsweek and in very general terms of Newsweek's uh, revenue is one-third advertising, um, one-third um, um, uh, subscriptions. So we have about 200,000 people subscribing, mostly in America, interestingly, for cultural reasons. People still want to hold Newsweek in, in, in the hand. Uh, and it's now become expensive. It's now 99.99 uh, a year. It used to be ridiculously low. It was as low as $20 a year, which meant that essentially the, the advertisers were, were subsidizing the subscribers. The subscribers were not paying the cost of delivering that package of colored paper to them every week. Um, but the difference in that model has been in the um, magazine as artifact model has been that Newsweek no longer uses the paper, colored paper medium to transmit news. It's, it's now perfect bound. I mean, those of you who have experience in the magazine industry know that um, when you're producing something fast, you staple it, like private eye. Uh, if you're producing something um, that's high quality and on glossy paper, you glue it. But in order to glue it, to glue the, the spine, perfect bound, like glossy magazines, uh, that means that your lead time goes up by about four days. So essentially, the, the, the magazine that began delivering news to the essential news of the week at the end of the week, and would, as in the words of the former editor Maynard Parker, would scramble the jets and deploy hundreds of, literally hundreds of journalists to break a story when it was happening. And then on Sunday, it arrives on your doorstep rather like a sort of you know, colored newspaper. No one's doing that anymore. What they're doing is they're charging much more money for uh, a product which people look at, read at length, at leisure, with you know, five, you know, not 5,000 word stories, probably, probably the, the biggest are, uh, they're between 1,500 and 3,000 word stories. So um, just to conclude, um, the fall and rise of Newsweek has actually shown uh, that not only that there can be a clear synergy and actually a successful one between the digital world and the old dinosaur brands, but also, strangely enough and parenthetically, there is a future in deeply reported journalism and also in uh, putting bundles of colored paper in people's hands, which people are, strangely enough, still willing to pay for. So. Uh, it's 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 uh, it's it's not all it's not all bad news. I'm it's glad to say. Encouraging tales. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank okay. you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.